Oh wow, this is beautiful out here. Let's check on this chicken. Smells good. Woo, looks good. Hey, what's going on? I didn't know you were listening over there. How's it going? Welcome to Gordon Speaks. We're just a variety show that talks about various topics, man, ranging from music to horror movies to cultivation to travel to quantum physics. I have various guests and uh, all sorts of different segments that are guaranteed <laughs> to ignite your auditory and imaginative senses. If you like to laugh, if you like to smile, if you dig some variety in your life, come on over to Gordon Speaks. Check us out. We'll be here on the dock. Peace. Coming to you from the Paranormal Warehouse, Destination Mystery paints the story for paranormal content, abnormal adventures, and the fun behind the investigations. Each week, Mike and Melissa will bring a new adventure that includes going to some of the most remote places in the West. They will tell the story behind the investigation and share with you the evidence they discover. This is not your regular paranormal show. These episodes will bring new content from locations that no one would think to investigate or explore. We will not only tell the spooky story, we will go to the location where the spooky story originated. Fasten your seatbelts as we take you on an adventure that will make you question what's normal and what's paranormal.
Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. You're listening to Bigfoot in the Citizen Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I want to thank you for being here. If you have an encounter or story you'd like to share with me, email me at sciencemeetsbigfoot at gmail.com, or if you're listening in on anchor.fm, go ahead and hit that message button and send me in a voice message. Either way works, just get at me. Speaking of voice messages, I signed up and activated a voicemail system for everyone to use. So if you have an encounter, story, feedback, or just want to come say hi, give it a call at 641-715-3900. That's 641-715-3900. Punch in 448-449 for the extension, and you'll get the Bigfoot in the Citizen Scientist Podcast reading. Make sure you hit pound to save your voicemail. I can air your encounters on episodes or just listen in. Please be sure to leave your contact info so I know who and where to reach if wanted. Okay, moving on. Today, we have a presentation on Teddy Roosevelt's Bigfoot Adventures, brought to us by National Park Service Organization member Brian Tadler, with guest speaker Cliff Berrickman, presenting his presentation on Sasquatch. I was fortunate enough to be invited to attend, and they were gracious enough to let me record. So please, sit back, relax, and enjoy tonight's presentation. Holy cow, guys, I almost forgot to tell you. At the end of this episode, I put bonus content. So make sure you stick around to hear some awesome bonus content. All right, back to it. I wonder how a man so thick-set, of rather abdominal contour, with eyes heavily spectacled, could have so much an air of magic and wild romance about him could give one so stirring an impression of adventure and chivalry. The Metropolitan Magazine. Fueled by cup after cup of coffee, served to him in a special mug his eldest son said was as big as a bathtub, Theodore Roosevelt raced through his day. Letters were answered upon receipt, a lifetime total of 150,000 dictated to shifts of weary stenographers. Jefferson wrote 22,000 letters and we regard him as one of the great correspondents in American history. Roosevelt wrote at least 150,000 letters. He's the writingest president in American history, by far. And a number of his books are American classics. So he's an intellectual. He read a book a day, sometimes three books in a day when he had some leisure. You think of Jefferson as America's Renaissance man, but it's really Roosevelt. He would not stop talking. He was a one-man gas bag. But it was so interesting that most people didn't mind. One of my favorite stories is he heard that there was a famous big game hunter in Washington, and he said to some of the people on the staff, get that man over here, I'd really like to meet him. So this big, strapping English fellow was taken into the president's office, and the door was closed, and people outside the office heard this talking going on. 
Finally, the man emerged about an hour and a half later, looking just beat down to, as though he'd been through a storm. And one of the president's staff said, what did you tell the president? He said, I told him my name. <laughs> we love him because of the energy. His laugh was infectious. His son, Ted, said, my father had a dozen eggs for breakfast every morning. So he's a large man, and he's larger than life. Roosevelt once said, there's nothing quite so exhilarating as being thrown over the shoulders of a 300-pound Japanese man. He played all these wild games in the White House. He wrestled with diplomats. He played a game called Single Stick with Leonard Wood in which they would wrap themselves up in cushions and then beat the living daylights out of each other with sticks until Roosevelt had to stop. He boxed with a young aide, too, until a blow caused him to lose vision in his left eye. Accordingly, I thought it better to acknowledge that I had become an elderly man and would have to stop boxing, he remembered. I then took up jujitsu for a year or two. Photographers were forbidden to cover his daily tennis games because he thought voters considered tennis a rich man's pastime. But when a cameraman failed to capture his horse jumping over an obstacle, he was more than happy to make the jump again. Roosevelt bit me, the editor William Allen White said, and I went mad. Hey there, citizen scientists. Make sure you go to my YouTube channel to check out this upcoming video. Enjoy. There you are. Thank you oh. kindly. Get uh, get that Wilson fellow off the uh, off the mute button for me, would yes. you? What I meant to say is that when The Wilderness Hunter was published in 1893, I was serving as United States Civil Service Commissioner. I served as president of the, that board of commissioners and served in that position for nearly six years. Served nearly as long in that federal appointment as I served as United States president. And I hope in the administration of uh, the Civil Service Commission and in the extension of civil service protections to the federal employees of the United States of America that I that it can be said I left my campground cleaner than I found it. But being a civil service commissioner gave me an opportunity to travel throughout the country to investigate the post office, where there was much in the way of corruption and malfeasance and electioneering, to investigate the operations of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the United States Department of the Interior, and by traveling in those Western states, especially to get in some good hunting while I was your civil servant. The, uh, the stories told and published in 1893 include a bit uh, that might put us into the framework to hear our wonderful author this evening on uh, Bigfoot, or do you say Sasquatch? You'll realize that there are no complete sets of bones of this uh, beast to be found in the American Museum of Natural History if my dear friend, Mr. John Janelli, who spent much of his youth working the pits at that museum can confirm that that is still the case. Uh, but uh, the fact that we have not yet discovered uh, these sorts of uh, uh, evidence uh, does not uh, prove that Bigfoot or Sasquatch does not exist. But from what I wrote, first, uh, we've mentioned the Selkirks, but first, out along the Kootenai, uh, now out by uh, Coeur d'Alene and out towards the Washington border, I did some hunting, indeed, with a one of our hunting guides was a member of the Lower Kootenai tribe. Uh, we called him Amal, amongst the many names by which he was known. And I had this to write in The Wilderness Hunter. 
Amal objected strongly to leaving the neighborhood of the lake. He went the first day's journey willingly enough, but after that it was increasingly difficult to get him along, and he gradually grew sulky. For some time we could not find out the reason, but finally he gave us to understand that he was afraid because up in the high mountain there were little bad Indians who would kill him if they caught him alone, especially at night. At first we thought he was speaking of stray warriors of the Blackfeet tribe, but it turned out that he was not thinking of human beings, beings at all, but of hobgoblins. Indeed, the night sounds of these great stretches of mountain woodland were very weird and strange. Though I have often and for long periods dwelt and hunted in the wilderness, yet I never before so well understood why the people who live in lonely forest regions are prone to believe in elves, wood spirits, and other beings of an unseen world. Our last camp, whereat we spent several days, was pitched in a deep valley nearly at the head of the stream. Our brush shelter stood among the tall coniferous trees that covered the valley bottom, but the altitude was so great that the forest extended only a very short distance up the steep mountain slopes. Beyond, on either hand, rose walls of gray rock with snow beds in their rifts, and high above, toward the snow peaks, the great white fields dazzled the eyes. The torrent foamed swiftly by, but a short distance below the mossy level space on which we had built our slight weather shield of pine boughs, other streams poured into it from ravines uh, through which they leaped down the mountainsides. After nightfall, round the campfire, or if I awakened after sleeping a little while, I would often lie silently for many minutes together, listening to the noises of the wilderness. At times, the wind moaned harshly through the tops of the tall pines and hemlocks. At times, the branches were still, but the splashing murmur of the torrent never ceased, and through it came other sounds, the clatter of huge rocks falling down the cliffs, the dashing of cataracts and far-off ravines, the hooting of owls. Again, the breeze would shift and bring to my ears the ringing of other brooks and cataracts and wind-stirred forests, and perhaps at long intervals, the cry of some wild beast, the crash of a falling tree, or the faint rumble of a snow avalanche. If I listened long enough, it would almost seem that I heard thunderous voices laughing and calling to one another, and as if at any moment some shape might stalk out of the darkness into the dim light of the embers. <laughs> but you'll, if you'll indulge me, please, the story of my friend Bauman. I think this puts us all together in the right place uh, to be for Mr. Barrickman's uh, presentation. Frontiersmen, as a rule, are not apt to be very super, uh, pardon me, frontiersmen are not, as a rule, apt to be very superstitious. They lead lives too hard and practical and have too little imagination in things spiritual and supernatural. I have heard but few ghost stories while living on the frontier. And these few were of a perfectly commonplace and conventional type. But I once listened to a goblin story, which rather impressed me. It was told by a grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bauman, 
who was born and had passed all his life on the frontier. We must have believed what he said. Uh, he must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tale. But he was of German ancestry and in childhood had doubtless been saturated with all kinds of ghost and goblin lore, so that many fearsome superstitions were latent in his mind. Besides, he knew well the stories told by the Indian medicine men in their winter camps of the snow walkers, of the specters, and the formless evil beings that haunt the forest depths and dog and waylay the lonely wanderer who after nightfall passes through the regions where they lurk. And it may be that when overcome by the horror of the fate that befell his friend, and when oppressed by the awful dread of the unknown, he grew to attribute, both at the time and still more in remembrance, weird and elfin traits to what was merely some abnormally wicked and cunning wild beast. But whether this was so or not, no man can say. When the event occurred, Bauman was still a young man and was trapping with a partner among the mountains, dividing the forks of the Salmon from the head of the Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, he and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass through which ran a small stream said to contain many beaver. The pass had an evil reputation because the year before a solitary hunter who had wandered into it was there slain, seemingly by a wild beast, the half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who had passed his camp only the night before. The memory of this event, however, weighed very lightly with the two trappers, who were as venturous and hardy as others of their kind. They took their two lean mountain ponies to the foot of the pass, where they left them in an open beaver meadow, the rocky timber-clad ground being from thence onwards impracticable for horses. They then struck out on foot through the vast gloomy forest, and in about four hours reached a little open glade, where they concluded to camp as signs of game were plenty. There was still an hour or two of daylight left, and after building a brush lean-to and throwing down and opening their packs, they started upstream. The country was very dense and hard to travel through, as there was much down timber, although here and there the somber woodland was broken by small glades of mountain grass. At dusk, they again reached camp, the glade in which it was pitched was not many yards wide, the tall, close-set pines and firs rounding round it like a wall. On one side was a little stream, beyond which rose the steep mountain slopes covered with the unbroken growth of the evergreen forest. They were surprised to find that during their short absence, something, apparently a bear, had visited camp and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs and in sheer wantonness, destroying their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were quite plain, but at first they paid no particular heed to them, busying themselves with rebuilding the lean-to, laying out their beds and stores and lighting the fire. While Ballman was making ready supper, it being already dark, his companion began to examine the tracks more closely and soon took a brand from the fire to follow them up where the intruder had walked along a game trail after leaving the camp. When the brand flickered out, he returned and took another 
repeating his inspection of the footprints very closely. Coming back to the fire, he stood by it a minute or two, peering out into the darkness, and suddenly remarked, Bauman, that bear has been walking on two legs. Bauman laughed at this, but his partner insisted that he was right, and upon examining the tracks with a torch, they certainly did seem to be made by but two paws, or feet. However, it was too dark to make sure, after discussing whether the footprints could possibly be those of a human being, and coming to the conclusion that they could not be, the two men rolled up in their blankets and went to sleep under the lean-to. At midnight, Bauman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong wild beast odor, and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed, for immediately afterwards he heard the smashing of the underwood as the thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest in the night. After this, the two men slept but little, sitting by the rekindled fire, but they heard nothing more. In the morning, they started out to look at the few traps they had set the previous evening and to put out new ones. By an unspoken agreement, they kept together all day and returned to camp towards evening. On nearing it, they saw, hardly to their astonishment, that the lean-to had been again torn down. The visitor of the preceding day had returned, and in wanton malice had tossed about their camp kit and bedding and destroyed the shanty. The ground was marked up by its tracks, and on leaving the camp it had gone along the soft earth by the brook, where the footprints were as plain as if on snow, and after a careful, careful scrutiny of the trail, it certainly did seem as if, whatever the thing was, it had walked off on but two legs. The men, thoroughly uneasy, gathered a great heap of dead logs, and kept up a roaring fire throughout the night, one or the other sitting on guard most of the time. About midnight, the thing came down through the forest opposite across the brook and stayed there on the hill for nearly an hour. They could hear the branches crackle as it moved about, and several times it uttered a harsh, grating, long-drawn moan, a peculiarly sinister sound, yet it did not venture near the fire. In the morning, the two trappers, after discussing the strange events of the last 36 hours, decided that they should shoulder their packs and leave the valley that afternoon. They were the more ready to do this because in spite of seeing a good deal of game sign, they had caught very little fur. However, it was necessary first to go along the line of their traps and gather them, and this they started out to do. All the morning they kept together, picking up trap after trap, each one empty, on first leaving camp, they had the disagreeable sensation of being followed. In the dense spruce thickets, they occasionally heard a branch snap after they had passed, and now and then there were slight rustling noises among the small pines to one side of them. At noon, they were back within a couple of miles of camp. In the high, bright sunlight, their fears seemed absurd to the two armed men, accustomed as they were through long years of lonely wandering in the wilderness, to face every kind of danger from man, brute, or element. There were still three beaver traps to collect from a little pond in a wide ravine nearby. Bauman volunteered to gather these and bring them in, while his companion went ahead to camp and made ready the packs. On reaching the pond, Bauman found three beaver in the traps, one of which had been pulled loose and carried into a beaver house. 
He took several hours in securing and preparing the beaver, and when he started homewards, he marked with some uneasiness how low the sun was getting. As he hurried towards camp under the tall trees, the silence and desolation of the forest weighed on him. His feet made no sound on the pine needles, and the slanting sun rays striking through among the straight trunks made a gray twilight in which objects at a distance glimmered indistinctly. There was nothing to break the ghostly stillness, which, when there is no breeze, always broods over these somber primeval forests. At last he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay and shouted as he approached it, but got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay the packs, wrapped and arranged. At first, Bauman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward, he again shouted, and as he did so, his eye fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature, printed deep in the soft soil, told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce slog with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking nearby in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared, came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with his forepaws while it buried its teeth in his throat. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambled round it in uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it, and had then fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bauman, utterly unnerved, and believing that the creature with which he had to deal was something either half-human or half-devil, some great goblin beast abandoned everything but his rifle and struck off at speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night until far from beyond the reach of pursuit. So Mr. Tadler and guests, I don't know if I believe in Sasquatch, but I can tell you Bauman surely does. Yeti, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, call it what you want, but it's an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, totally interesting. And it doesn't matter if you're a believer or not. Now you can learn all about it at a new museum that opened today in Boring. Foxville's John Hendricks went to check it out live in studio with the story to show that boring is anything but boring. Yeah, pretty fascinating, not boring. Oh, yeah. It was uh, quite the adventure today. The North American Bigfoot Center opened this morning. It's a small sampling of the things that point to the existence of Bigfoot. Folks at the museum say it is only expected to grow in the coming months. 
Just off Highway 26. Some ways it's eye-opening. In boring on the way to Mount Hood. We are here. We are open from now on. Masks, maps, castings, and yes, a life-size Bigfoot fill a new museum dedicated to all things about the elusive creature. I've had witnesses today who have seen Sasquatches up close say that the face is very close to what they saw. The museum is the brainchild of Cliff Berrickman and his wife. He's a longtime Bigfoot hunter, 25 years he's been at it. I think in some ways it's eye-opening, but for other people who have actually seen these animals out in the wild, it's, it's validating because they're not taken seriously as witnesses. Here, you can learn of sightings and take a look at castings made from footprints found around the country. My job is to put eyeballs on the evidence and let the people decide for themselves. I don't care what you think. I don't care what anybody thinks. I know they're real. I've seen one, and I'm here to share the love of the subject with everyone. At the new museum, you can even learn of lore of native cultures from all over. The Apaches in Arizona said, yeah, I, my grandma told me don't go out in the woods, or when you do go out in the woods, knock stones together to let the Bigfoots know you're coming, and that sort of stuff. And you hear that same thing from other tribes in other parts of North America as well. Berkman knows there are skeptics out there, but he encourages anyone to entertain the idea and come and learn all about Bigfoot. Every footprint found, every sighting, every everything they heard about in Bigfoot, was put on this map. And this is the original. This is not a replica at all. Now that museum and gift shop is only partly open. They say they plan to expand in the coming months. The goal to fill the 3,400 square feet they have on Highway 26. Reporting live in studio tonight, John Hendricks, Fox Football. I want to thank everybody here for participating in this. I want to thank Brian for inviting me. And of course, you, Mr. President, I appreciate that. Uh, it must be very, very difficult to get here from beyond the grave, but I really do appreciate it so much. Um, and it, I thought that this would be a good opportunity to share with the audience here um, a little bit about the evidence of Bigfoot. It's not, not just Theodore Roosevelt here, of course. Uh, it's the evidence of Bigfoot, because skeptics, God bless them, and skeptics play a valuable role, don't get me wrong, I appreciate skepticism, um, because there's so much garbage out there, so much BS in the Bigfoot world. Um, skeptics are very, very valuable to us, because they challenge our thinking, and the thing about Sasquatches, or any truth, is that it can withstand the scrutiny. And uh, skeptics uh, supply that, essentially. So I want to share with you a brief overview, and this is very brief, by the way, this is Bigfoot 101, um, like an introduction to Bigfoot class, Bigfoot evidence. I want to share with you a, uh, an overview of the available Sasquatch evidence or the evidence for Bigfoot. So let me see if I can um, do this and if everything goes right, I should be able to do this. And my screen just went dark. So we'll see. Oh, here it is. I'm going to try to share this. Brian, can you, I see you, Brian. Can you see the, my screen? I can't hear you. Can you just give me a thumbs up or thumbs down, Brian? Thumbs up. Good, 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 good. Thank you so much. 
And from the beginning, all right. Now you see Bigfoot, the evidence, right, Brian, I assume. Okay, very good. And I know he's nodding, so I know everybody can hear me. I assume this. Again, this is the ev- ev- some of the evidence for Sasquatch, right? Because here's the deal. Um, the first thing we need to do is differentiate between evidence and proof, okay? There's a big, big difference. Um, there, like evidence is what I represent here on the left, like a footprint cast of a purported footprint cast of a Sasquatch. That would be considered evidence. Um, on the right is a witness drawing from a man who claims he shot in Sasquatch in the 1940s. Um, a dead Sasquatch or any large piece thereof would be considered proof because there's no two ways about it. Skeptics would argue on the left that that is fake, that somebody made that or sculpted that into the ground, or it's a misidentification or something like that. But if you come out with a dead body of a Sasquatch, there's really no two ways about it. It's the, it's what it is. And that is what is unfortunately going to take for proof which is why I don't bother trying to prove Bigfoot is real. I just give you the evidence. I'm not a gun guy. I'd probably just end up hurting myself or some of my friends I go camping with. Um, It's just better to leave firearms out of my hands. But anyway, that would be the two main differences, proof versus evidence. But evidence is important for science. Um, This, what you're looking at now is is a chart that basically outlines what science is. Science is not a body of knowledge that is jealously guarded by academics in the White Tower who don't want to share it and keep all the plebeians uh, and the serfs below them. That is a paranoid, weird view, and that's not what science is. Science is a process. It is a process to find out what is true. So we all do it every day, but science has kind of formalized the process so they can get it right every time. And so let's start at the top and I'll walk you through the scientific process. It basically starts with a question that arises from the facts because facts are all around us, you know? And if you have a question about those facts, then you say, well, I wonder if this could be true. And you kind of answer your own question, or you give a possible answer to your question, and that is called a hypothesis, okay? Now you go gather evidence. Basically, you try to find things that will support or refute your perspective, your answer, your hypothesis, and then you test your hypothesis. Or does the evidence that you gathered, does it support your hypothesis or does it refute it? If it supports it, then we look at the flow chart to the left and we try to go gather more evidence. If it does not support your hypothesis, then you have to go back and make a new hypothesis. That's just the way it is. And you keep doing that. You rinse and repeat that over and over and over again, because the goal of every scientist, whether you have letters behind your name, like PhD, or whether you're like myself, a citizen scientist who believes in the scientific process and thinks that logic and evidence are important for belief, then you continually try to prove yourself wrong. Trip out on that. A scientist is always trying to prove him or herself wrong because if you cannot prove yourself wrong, then maybe you're right but you never stop trying to prove yourself wrong. They're still trying to prove Einstein wrong. 
It's been over 100 years since his general relativity theory was released, and we're still trying to prove it wrong. And there's been a few tweaks here and there for like even the law of uh, gravity, for example, all tweaks here and there, which is why there are theories. But at the end of the day, you're trying to prove yourself wrong. And maybe you can, maybe you can't. Well, for me, I started with these facts. These are indisputable facts. No one can refute this, or you can, I guess, but you'd be wrong, but no one can refute these. These are facts. The first one basically says for over 400 years, people have reported seeing large hair-covered man-like animals in the wilderness areas of North America. That is a fact. We have evidence of it. Sightings of these animals continue today. Real or not, these reports are often made by people of unimpeachable character. That is also true. Undisputable. The third one says for over 70 years now, people have been finding, photographing, and casting sets of very large human-shaped tracks. Most of these are discovered in, by chance in remote areas, and these tracks continue to be found to this very day. Today, I don't know. Saturday, there was a footprint find on Saturday. So this is true. And then the last one, the cultural histories of many, I'm going to change that to all, in fact, Native Americans that live in, and First Nations people that live in appropriate habitat include stories and beliefs about non-human people of the wild. Many of these descriptions, very striking resemblance to the hairy man-like creatures reported today. These are indisputable facts. And faced with facts like these, intelligent people tend to bring up questions like, what in the world's going on? And maybe you have an answer for that. My hypothesis, my answer is that there is a biological entity, actually a whole bunch of biological entities responsible for this, a species of undiscovered humanoid, hominoid, ape-like thing, Sasquatches. That is my hypothesis. And let's take a look at the evidence because evidence should support that, support it or refute it. These are types of evidence that are available for Sasquatches being real animals. Native accounts, historical and settler accounts, contemporary witnesses, sound recordings, photographs, films and videos, tracks and hair and DNA, and maybe a body or part of one eventually. We have not gotten that yet because that would be proof. We lack the proof, but the evidence is overwhelming. Let's go to the first kind of evidence I talked about, the Native American and First Nations accounts. Native American is what we call them in the United States. First Nations is what we call the indigenous people in Canada. Um, either one. Sasquatches live in both places. They don't respect the, the country lines. Who cares? They're the ultimate anarchists. They can do what they want to do. So if you go back and look at the mythologies art and histories of native tribes who live in appropriate habitat for Sasquatches, every single group has stories of these things. Giant hair covered whatever's living outside of their villages, roaming around at night. And in fact, a lot of their art depicts them in, in ways that we now know today are Bigfoot related. That thing on the left, for example, a photograph by Edward Curtis taken in 1914, um, that is a, well, it's a person wearing a giant mask and has big old hands and covered in hair. It's a bear, it's a bear costume, it's a bear 
pelt, I should say. But that is supposedly depicting a giant hair-covered giantess living outside of uh, their villages called, uh, well, it, this is called Hammy, but in other local Coast Salish traditions is called Zonaqua. Um, she, and she's uh, depicted with that pursed lips for two reasons. Number one is the sound she makes. Goes, whoo, whoo, which is a sound that's been associated with Sasquatches before. And also that these things whistle. Zonaqua is reported to whistle, which is also a Sasquatch reported behavior that is also known from the other great apes. Orangutans, it turns out, whistle. These are reported to whistle. There's videos of orangutans whistling. It is a known ape behavior. In the middle there is a photograph that I had the opportunity to take of a traditional native mask depicting Sasquatches. Um, they don't call them Sasquatch because that's not the term. Sasquatch, the word Sasquatch was invented by some white guy on a coast or on a um, on the native reserve. It's like a reservation in Canada um, outside of Harrison Hot Springs. The Sahelas people live there. Um, it is from their language, the Coast Salish language, that we kind of anglicized the word and made the word Sasquatch. It was coined in the 1920s. The reason it was coined is because their language isn't Englished very easily. You can't spell words using the English alphabet in their language because they have a bunch of sounds that we don't. A lot of glottal stops and other sounds that you just can't write in English. And so this guy, J.W. Burns was his name. He was hearing stories from his friends on the reserve, these indigenous people he was working with. He was a teacher. And, uh, and he kept hearing stories about giant hair-covered native people outside of town. And uh, he even spoke to people who had seen them. He didn't know what to make of it. So he, had, he, wanted, to, he wanted to write about it. So he coined the word Sasquatch. But that's the mask. There are photographs of that mask from the, from the 1920s. Um, and it was actually lost. It ended up in the basement of a museum in Victoria, I believe, uh, or Vancouver, one of the two, in BC. And it was uh, I had the opportunity to see it and take photographs of it the day before they were going to clean it for the first time in almost a century. It was, a, it was an honor. On the right there, there's also Zonaqua. She's on the bottom of the totem pole. I say she because you can see she's got breasts. Um, and again, there she is, big hands, characteristic of the Sasquatch, uh, pursed lips. And uh, again, she's all over the place in, in the Pacific Northwest indigenous cultures. But the Cherokees on the East Coast had them. You know, the Cree and the, and the Creek down in Southeast, they also had stories of Sasquatches. Um, the Navajo in the, like the desert Southwest have stories of Sasquatches. Um, they all do, every one. So if Sasquatches are not real, that, well, gosh, skeptics have a lot of explaining to do because clearly the native people in Florida, we're not speaking to the native people in British Columbia. Trade routes didn't go that far, I think. It's probably safe to say. Um, and why would all their stories have the same physical description and behavioral descriptions? Like, why, how could that be true? If Bigfoots are not, in fact, real animals that occupy the landscape with the people who live there. So... Here's another uh, native depiction. This native depiction is from Southern California in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, and it depicts a family of Sasquatches. Uh, the local people there say, this is the hairy man. Um, this is what it looks like, the black lion master there, but that's what it really looks like. Um, and, you know, cut us some slack. 
If you're not seeing it, oh, it's all washed out. Well, you're not going to look good. You're not going to look this good when you're 800 to 1,500 years old either. You know, and that's how old these are. And these are natural berry dyes and all that sort of stuff. We're lucky this exists at all. This is under a rock shelter on the Thule Indian Reservation outside of uh, Bakersfield, basically in Southern Sierra, uh, Sierra Nevada Mountains. And this is an interesting one because, well, number one, it, it's been dated, like I said, between 800 and 1,500 years ago, which is long before white contact. Um, it's life size. Hairy guy on the right-hand side is eight and a half feet tall. It is life-size for a Sasquatch. And this particular tribe, this is the only known tribe that actually incorporates Sasquatches into their uh, creation mythology, their creation story. Very briefly, the creation story goes something like this. Hairy man, which is what they call this, is talking to Coyote. And they're kind of talking about how to create all the other animals. Coyote is saying, you know what? All the other animals should walk on four legs like me. And Hairy Man is saying, no, they should walk on two legs like me. And they kind of uh, went back and forth about it and decided to settle their argument by having a foot race, by running, a running race. And whoever won, we get to create the animals like they want. Well, coyotes being tricksters and whatnot, um, cheated. He took a shortcut, he won the race, and that is why all the animals walk on four legs. Well, Hairy Man, being the smartest of all the animals in the woods, found out pretty quick, and he was pretty upset about it, which is why he's crying. You can see the tears coming out of his eyes. And human beings sprang from the tears of Hairy Man. And that is why we walk on two legs, not four. So skeptics, and I appreciate skepticism, this story was around a lot longer than white people were in North America for hundreds of years, possibly thousands, we don't know. But here we go. We have us being born from Hairy Man, the other animal that walks on two legs in North America. Interesting, not proof, but it's interesting. Definitely evidence. And then we get into historical and settler accounts. Well, this guy with this either awesome collar or an amazing throat beard um, is Elkano Walker. I'm not sure, uh, um, if it's a beard or not, I hope it's a beard. It might be a collar. But um, he wrote this in 1840. He was basically working with the Spokane native people in Eastern Washington. And he saw these mountains. We're not sure if it was Mount Adams or Mount St. Helens, but he wanted to go visit it. And he said, hey, can you take me over there? I need a guide so I don't get lost and die in the woods. And, um, and the native people he was working with said, no, we're not going there, man. We're not going there. And why not? Well, it turns out there's a race of giants that live on that mountain and they come out and hunt and work at night. They steal men, their tracks are 18 inches long. They steal salmon and they smell real bad. They whistle and they throw rocks. Well, I probably wouldn't go there either. Actually, knowing me nowadays, I, it's exactly where I would go, honestly. But um, this guy didn't they said, okay, you convinced me, I'm not gonna go. And they didn't go there. But if you look down this list of things that the native people said about those giants on the hill, it's known ape behaviors. Yeah, the men stealers. Uh, yeah, you know what? Chimpanzees, they steal infants in Africa. It's not a widely known behavior, but they do when, uh, when the like, times are bad and they eat them. Um, baby stealing is a real thing amongst living apes today. Um, Sasquatch tracks are a foot and a half long. Well, about 14, 15 inches up to about 17 inches. It jibes. Um, Sasquatches have been encountered many times stealing salmon out of nets. Um, there is a smell associated with about 10 to 15% of sightings. We've probably heard about the skunk ape before. That's part of the reason that it's named that. 
Um, and Sasquatches whistle, like I previously mentioned, and so do orangutans. Oh, the strong and intolerable smell, by the way. Gorillas have a scent gland in their armpits that exude a similar spell, a smell or a smell that's described similarly to Sasquatches. And they do so under stressful situations like encountering people. I mean, of course, stone throwing is a known ape behavior, but some of these ape behaviors weren't known before Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey did their pioneering work on primates in the 1960s and 1970s. But here we have a story from 1840 describing known ape behaviors associated with these giants that live on the mountains. Well, again, evidence. And then, of course, we come across the Bauman story, which we all had opportunity to hear. This is not an actual depiction of what happened in the Bauman story. I thought I'd put that out there, but it is an excellent picture of a, of a Sasquatch and Teddy Roosevelt. Um, it's kind of hard to find pictures of Sasquatches with presidents nowadays for some reason, but here's one. Um, of course, and I'm, I'm a nonviolent Bigfoot researcher. You should know that. But the Bauman story, I mean, you heard it. Something was walking around on two legs. Not a lot of things do that out in the woods. And then, of course, as the dominant European culture was filling in the center part of the United States, because the Europeans came over um, and they dominated the East Coast, uh, Russians and Spaniards were on the West Coast, and eventually they filled out the center part, you know, trying to connect the two coasts, so to speak. As they moved into the interior, into the wilderness areas there, they certainly ran across Sasquatches. They ran across all the animals in there. Here's a small sampling of some of those stories that were told in uh, newspapers. This one is from 1893, or 1838 rather, sorry. Um, talk about a strange animal with the appearance of a child that was entirely covered in hair that ran off very quickly whistling. Hmm, okay, there's that whistling thing again. Here's another story from 1878 about a giant that was six and a half feet tall with big shoulders and apish arms, uh, had a smooth face, which I'm taking probably mean the most lacking hair. I could be wrong. Um, had a funnel shaped head. That's interesting because of the sagittal crests that apes have. Um, it's a bony structure on the top of the head for anchoring chewing muscles. Um, it, it, the body was covered with dark brown hair, two inches long. It pounded itself on the chest. It didn't speak. It ran like a deer and it made a bed of leaves and many bones. Again, that was in 1878 out of Pennsylvania. Here's one out of Oregon, dated 1885. This animal was seen hunting. It wasn't wearing clothing, but it had long hair like an animal's. It was seen eating raw deer meat and it fled with the swiftness of the wind into the mountains and the sightings keep coming. All of these people are uh, people that I've spoken to, uh, witnesses that have seen Sasquatches and I've spoken to, I don't think I would be exaggerating at all to say a thousand or two more. Um, and these people have nothing to gain and everything to lose essentially. On the left, there's a, a couple out of Alaska that saw a Sasquatch from, about, from the other side of the road. So very, very close, they had an excellent observation, even to the point where they noticed that uh, the, 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 the details of the hands. Um, they both noticed different things. It was fascinating to speak to them. That guy on the right's cool because uh, he's a musician. He was driving home from a gig real late one night in Montana, and he saw one cross the road right at the Continental Divide. And I loved him because he could care less that he saw a Sasquatch. He thought it was weird that I was interested. He goes, yeah, I saw it. I don't know what to think of it, but that's what it was. And it's just, he, all right, that's what it was. Okay, the, bottom, the woman on the bottom right, um, she saw one on Thanksgiving. Talk about something to be thankful for. Um, she screeched to a halt in her car and the thing was like 10 feet in front of the car. 
And then like, and it stopped on one leg in mid stride, like many, many wild animals do when they realize they've been spotted. They just stop in mid step because if they stand still, they're much harder to see. The Sasquatch slowly turned around and then it and that woman screamed at the same time and it ran off into the creek next to the road. And then my favorite, the woman on the bottom left, Lorraine, I will always remember her because, well, uh, she's an excellent witness. She was driving down the road in Minnesota and off to the right of the road. Well, actually, she was driving down the road in Minnesota and there was a car in the middle of the road full of 20 something kids, like young, young men in the car. And they were all looking to the right. So she looked to the right and she saw a big black hair covered man shaped thing looking in the window of a trailer off on the farm field, about eight and a half feet tall or so. Well, this thing was looking in the window for a few moments, then stopped and started walking down the driveway towards her car. And she's parked on the road a little bit away. Well, the kids in the car in front of her bailed. They all went, ah, and then it drove off very, very quickly. Um, and then Lorraine was left for a front row seat as the Sasquatch walked in front of her car across the road and into the brush on the side of the road and disappeared into the woods. She was great because look at her. She's adorable, first of all. And second of all, she talked like a sailor. Holy smokes, did she have a mouth on her. But, you know, when they walked in front of the car, she goes, Cliff, I'll tell you what. It walked right in front of me and looked at me. And you know what? It was a boy. I went, oh, my goodness. She must have seen something to tell her that. But that's important for this story. And I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I'll keep it PG 13 here, but we were on the road filming for finding Bigfoot at the time. And we're out in the middle of like rural Minnesota. There's nothing going on that where we were, right? Some truck comes by and guy and pulls up and he goes, Hey, what y'all filming or whatever. Cause there's cameras or there, we're a scene. Right. Um, and then like one of the people says, Oh, we're filming a, a documentary. I said, what about, it's about Bigfoot. And he goes, Oh, you're looking for long dong peek along which is like the local nickname. And now think about it. Okay, Lorraine noticed it was a boy. That explains the first part of that nickname, right? But the second part of the nickname, peek along, the man went on to say, oh yeah, people see that the big guy looking into windows. Some of his neighbors had seen it as well. Because when there's a Sasquatch in the neighborhood, more than one people, one, more than one person is going to see it occasionally. And sure enough, all the local people knew that there was a big, dark, covered Sasquatch in the area that was a boy looking into windows. That's just what it liked to do. And over the last few years, it had been seen doing it. it. So we were interviewing one witness who had seen this animal and another one showed up who was aware of it, but maybe had not seen it. Interesting. There are other types of evidence beyond sighting reports because sightings are kind of soft evidence because you don't know how good of an observer the witness is. You don't know the conditions they were seen. In. You know, there's a lot of wiggliness, shall we say, with uh, people in general, you know, perspectives and cultures and whatever else could, could perhaps taint or flavor the observations. But then we get into other sort of harder evidence. And here's some right here. All of these types of vocalizations have been recorded in the field. Um, in areas where Sasquatches are known to be, or thought to be, I should say. Um, I was going to play some for you, but when our sound check with Brian the other day, we were having trouble with the audio. So I'm just going to have to put that in your um, court, shall we say, that you're going to have to go out and do some searching online for recordings. I was not able to make them play over the recording here. So let's move on to something a little bit more fun. 
Oh, like photographs. People say uh, all the photographs of Sasquatches are blurry. That's not true, but some of them are, and there's reasons for that. Like this picture here. I'm completely confident this is the Sasquatch, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. It was taken up the Clackamas River in 2010 by a, a game camera. It was evening time, so the uh, and you can tell it's a black and white looking picture. That's because of the infrared flash on the picture at the time. Um, during nighttime photography with game cameras, the shutter opens longer than it does during the day. Anybody who takes photographs knows about this. The shutter speed matters a lot. The longer the shutter is open, the more blur, the more, the more potential a blur could happen. And that's what happened here. Now, why I think this is a Sasquatch. Let's see if I can get my cursor to appear. I'm assuming you see my cursor. This whole blurry thing here, you can see the leg down there. There's actually me over here, it's hard to see, but I've spent a lot of, this is a blur over here. But this up here, kind of, this up here, I've, I was there at the scene. I've done the recreations of this. Whatever this bipedal thing running is, it is seven foot, 10 inches tall, okay? Um, the guy who took this works with police officers. Uh, rangers specifically on the um, down the Clackamas River in Mount Hood National Forest, whatever this is, whatever it is, is seven foot, 10 inches tall. I've done the analysis of it. I'm not going to go into it. You're going to have to take my word on that one. But if it's not a Bigfoot, what else could it be? It's certainly not an elk. The guy didn't fake it. I'm completely confident he didn't fake it. I've spent a lot of time with this guy. So there's something bipedal that's seven foot, 10 inches tall running around. But not all photographs are blurry. There's this one, it's a little blurry. It's pretty interesting. It's from Vermont. I know the guy who got this photograph, his name is Frank. Uh, what we have here, the way I interpret it, is the head, the right shoulder, the left shoulder, the arm is going down because you can see there are apples on the ground. That's the whole reason this picture was even taken. Frank saw that there were big circles, like five foot circles of apples being stolen from his tree overnight. He goes, what in the world is doing that? And he thought he was going to get a bear. So he put up a game camera on this tree. And about a week and a half later, he got this picture. I don't know what these white things are, but the, the, whatever this is, I take this as the head, the body. There's the butt over there. The legs would go down there. There's an arm. Um, and this thing, whatever this thing is, it looks like there's a hand. Could this be a juvenile? I don't know what this is. Maybe that's a juvenile Sasquatch grabbing onto the chest of its mother. Not really sure. Hard to say. And I don't know what the white spots are. But there are other pictures. There's this one. It's pixelated because I zoomed in pretty close and it was taken on a, like a kind of a, an old technology flip phone. In New Mexico, a place called Farmington, um, the local people are aware of the Sasquatches that come up and down the river, the San Juan River. And uh, it's on, an, on, the, on the Navajo Reservation. And this particular part of the reservation has a lot of poverty. So um, the Navajo tribe has taken to irrigating part of the desert above and growing food for the tribal members. But because there's a lot of poverty, they had to hire security guards to guard the food, you know, the produce and whatnot. And one of the security guards got this photograph of the thing walking. It was about 100 yards or 200 yards away. I'd have, and it's carrying a log or something. I'm not sure what it's doing. But I, went, I didn't get a chance to speak to the witness. I spoke to his colleagues, his coworkers, who, several, of which, several of which had seen Sasquatches while on their job. And they all turned to me and said, Cliff, we were hired to keep the people out. We don't know what to do about the Bigfoots. But here's a little bit of evidence suggesting that, yeah, there's something going on down there in Farmington, New Mexico. 
Here's another picture. The original is on the left. The uh, um, enhanced, shall we say, the lightened um, is on the right. This is taken by a 17-year-old man, 17-year-old at the time named Ian Gill um, in Vermont. He was driving to his grandmother's cabin at about 12, 1230 at night. Something ran in front of his car. Um, he thought it was a man in a ghillie suit, but he was um, in the passenger seat. So he stuck his iPhone 5 out the window and snapped the picture as they went by. And that's what they got. At first, when I saw this, I thought, oh, it's probably a hoax. Um, and maybe it still is. I don't know. But I did go to the location with the man, with Ian. And it turns out that luckily the thing in the picture was taken next to the stop sign. That stop sign is still there. The bottom of the stop sign is seven foot, two inches off the ground. So if it is a guy in a suit, it's a pretty big one. And maybe it is, but it's seven foot, two inches tall, whatever that is. And then there's this from Silver Star Mountain in Washington, taken about a decade ago by a good friend of mine. I didn't know the guy at the time, but he's since become a good friend. His name's Randy Chase. He went to the he went to uh, walk to the top of Silver Star Mountain, which is a double peaked mountain. He'd been there many times, and when he got up there this November day, it had been snowing, and he turned and he looked to the north at the other peak of the mountain, and he saw a rock that he had never seen there before, and he thought that was weird, so he took a picture of it. That's the picture on the upper left. He turned around and took a picture of Portland, Oregon and the Columbia River and a beautiful vista in front of him. He turned back around and that rock had stood up on two legs. And then it turns and walks down off trail down the mountain slope where there's no road and no trail on a very steep train. Well, we have three photographs here. In the upper left, we have, there's some interesting details. See the pointed head? It kind of recalls that uh, historical account where the, the Sasquatch had a funnel-shaped head because of the sagittal crest. Um, apes and other human ancestors, um, when they took to chewing very, very fibrous food, they needed very, very strong chewing muscles. And it turns out that your chewing muscles go up the side of the head. And eventually, if you needed more chewing muscles than you have a uh, place to connect on your skull, the, um, the skull accommodates and in a species will start growing a ridge right here called a sagittal crest, which is why gorillas sometimes get that pointy head sort of thing going. And that gives more surface area for the chewing muscles to attach to. I think that's what we're seeing there. You can also see possibly chest, uh, pectoral muscles or breasts, not really sure. Very, very flat head. When it stood up and looked, not a lot of detail is there, but we can see that it's clearly a man or a Sasquatch. And then it turns and walks down the hill. Well, Sasquatches are not humans. They're not people. They're, they're Sasquatches. They're different. And they are their bodies are built differently. So I took a frame from the Patterson-Gimlin film, which has not been proven fake. I know we have 100, over 100 people listening right now, and some of you are going, wasn't that proven fake? Like, what, what about him admitting on his deathbed? That's, that's, a, that's not the accurate depiction of what happened at all. It's a long story, but that's not true. People have tried to prove this film fake, and they have failed every time. But if we take this uh, Sasquatch, reported Sasquatch from the Patterson-Gimlin film, and compare it to the Silver Star figure, it lines up really well like the top of the head compared to the shoulder, compared to the top of the rump right there, uh, the, where the hand or the bottom of the rump is, to where the hand is. All of those things are important. The butt is very important for a Sasquatch because your butt muscles are the largest muscles in your body. And they are used for two things. Number one, holding your torso above your pelvis. In other, in other words, an upright posture. 
And also it's used for bipedal walking. That's why gorillas don't have big butt muscles. That's why bears don't have big butt muscles. But, pardon the pun, but if you're a Sasquatch, you're going to have really, really, really big butt muscles because this Patterson-Gimlin film creature that has inhuman proportions, by the way, no human could fill the suit out. I want to point that out. No human comes in this size and shape. Um, even if she's only six or six and a half feet tall, which is about the size we think she is, her shoulders are 31 or 32 inches wide. Okay. Now she's also almost that wide from front to back. Can you picture how much that torso weighs? That, that she weighs about 450, 500 pounds. That torso's got to weigh probably 300 pounds. That would that would necessitate a very, very well-developed butt muscles to keep that torso above the pelvis. And let alone the uneven, nasty terrain these things tend to live in, walking up and down mountains and stuff like that is got, takes a lot of muscle. You would expect Sasquatches to have big butts. And any Sasquatch picture that doesn't is probably some dude in a suit. But this one is very compelling. Here's another picture. Don't look too hard. It's in the, I'm going to show you zoomed in, but that's it right there. This was taken in 2017 um, in Pennsylvania on a eco boat tour to this um, off limit side of the lake. And they, in the second tour of the day, the, the, the guys on the boat, there were 17 or 18, 19 people on the boat, tourists, and plus the boat skipper, plus the docent giving the eco tour to this part of the lake. Um, they saw a hairy man with a stick poking something in the lake. And then it stood up and started walking away. And that's when they got these pictures here. Let's zoom in. It's really pixelated because it's zoomed in. But there we go again. And let's compare it to the Patterson-Gimlin film creature. It compares very, very well. And again, that big butt is right there. Sasquatches have, they got, Bigfoot got back. What can you say? You know, I like Bigfoot and I cannot lie. Um. So there are photographs. There's also films. Little clip from the Patterson-Gimlin film, 1967. Uh, and again, no human comes in that size. Whoever, if that was a suit, whoever is in that suit has inhuman proportions, arms longer in proportion to their leg than any human on the planet. But yet they have to fill out the suit because you can actually see fingers moving from frame to frame in the film. The fingers themselves move. So somebody has to have shoulders that wide with arms that long because the fingers are moving. Doesn't make any sense to me. This is another film from the Blue Mountains of the Oregon-Washington border. Yeah, there's a, it's called the Freeman footage. He was following footprints up to this point. And he got lucky with a short little clip right there called the Freeman footage. Here's another film taken on thermal imager in Florida. Thermal imagers, in case you don't know, just see heat. They don't see light like our eyes see. Um, anything that is warm in this picture will be dark colored, like therefore the mammal in the middle that's either clearly a human or a Sasquatch is black because it's the warmest thing in the picture. Everything else is washed out because it rained for the good part of the day here and water would make everything about the same temperature. So I'll go ahead and try to restart this again. And what do you notice? Uh, what I notice is a couple things. Uh, the long bent knee, 
um, that bends further than humans bend their knee. We bend our knee about 72 to 76 degree angle. Sasquatches approach 90 with every step. And also big old hands. Do you remember those depictions, the native depictions with the big giant hands? And this was taken in 2012, if I remember. I could be wrong about that. It's called the Stacy Brown footage, thermal imagers. This was taken at night. They would have never seen it without the thermal imager. And then we get to footprints. Footprints, I think, are probably the best hard evidence for Sasquatches um, because of the internal consistency. And a lot of people would look at this and say, oh, they look like human prints, but they don't is the thing. They superficially look like human prints. The print on the right, for example, from 1982 is 14 and a half, 15 inches long. Um, but there's other things in here. We have a photograph of a print on the left from 1963, one in the middle from 1970, and then the one on the right from 1982. They all compare favorably to size, but there's some other things going on as well. Let's look over here because this is by far the cleanest, clearest footprint shown here. Um, you're going to notice that there's this bulge, a couple bulges here on the outside of the foot. Okay, This gives us indications where the underlying bones are. And in particular, this is where the phalanges attach the metatarsals. Over here on this side, there's this curvature right here that kind of buckles underneath. This is not an arch, by the way. The foot is, uh, is it supinated? No, it's pronated. At the, no, supinated at the time. It lifted up a little bit. So it, it gives the appearance of an arch, but it is not an arch. But look at this over here. Remember this bulge? Look at this right here. There's the bulge on the outside of the foot in the same place. Over here is the inside curvature. It compares very favorably over here. And this is important because after seeing hundreds of these casts, anatomists like Dr. Jeff Melder from Idaho State University or Dr. Grover Krantz from Washington State University have kind of inferred the bone layout of the foot, the bone structure of the foot. And they have both come to the same conclusion based on footprints. What they find is that the metatarsals, which are the bones in this area, where's my cursor? There it is. The bones in this area have been shortened. And then the ankle would come down here. And then the heel would be a little bit longer than in humans. This is found independently. The reason that's important is because your foot works like a wheelbarrow, essentially. It's called a type two lever. It's a, it's a simple lever, but you, the kind of stuff you studied in junior high and high school, a type two lever is a wheelbarrow. And uh, uh, let's, let's do a little thought experiment here. You put a bunch of stuff into the wheelbarrow and you want to lift it up. You pull real hard and it lifts up. You put even more stuff in the wheelbarrow. You could struggle and lift it up. It's going to take a lot more force and strength. But another way to deal with it would be to lengthen the handles of the wheelbarrow right? And that would make it easier to lift up. That's one of the accommodations you can make to the type two lever. You'd have to move it further. So the same amount of work will be done at the end of the day, but it's actually takes, it takes less force. That's the heel of your foot. The heel is essentially the handle of the wheelbarrow. And one way to accommodate a mass the size of a Sasquatch and not exert more force and therefore eat up more calories would be to lengthen the heel of the foot and shorten the metatarsals in the front part. That is the necessary biomechanical redesign of the foot um, mandated to carry a mass the size of a Sasquatch in a loosely human-like fashion. And we find that consistency in the Sasquatch footprints. So if these Sasquatch footprints are indeed hoaxes, as the skeptics insist they must be, then it was thought about beforehand 
the people faking these footprints put them there in hopes of some sort of anthropologist or anatomist coming to the same conclusion as what they planted there for them to see. They'd have to know something about the biomechanics of human walking and leverage ratios and all that sort of stuff. Um, it seems rather ridiculous to me because it's consistent in the tracks from 1958 to the stuff that was cast last week. It's consistent no matter where or when or by whom it was cast. It's pretty staggering evidence in my mind, at least. Now, here's a kind of a drawing of the bones. Like, I'll just take this one on the right here. Um, these two, this is a Sasquatch inferred morphology, and this is human. We see, okay, this is narrow. And of course, we're blown up to different sizes, so they kind of match the same size. Um, but one of the first things you're going to notice, besides the width of the print, is that the ankle bone here is actually forward on the foot than in humans, which lengthens that lever, which uh, enables a Sasquatch to exert fewer calories while walking in proportion than humans would. This was brought about by Dr. Oh, that, by the way, Dr. Jeff Meldrum up here. He's the guy that um, did these anatomy uh, uh, reconstructions. Dr. Grover Krantz, who passed away, he was a Washington State University anthropologist. He's the guy that kind of started working on this based on Sasquatch footprints that had a strange morphology, these two bumps on the outside, different than the bumps we talked about earlier, but um, he's the guy that kind of started putting that together. What I'm doing here, what I want to do here is point out something else. There's another difference that you can see in the footprint tracks. In humans, we have an arch in our foot. And our arch is in this area here, and it is held static, held stiff by tendons and ligaments. We are the only ape species that has that because we're different than the other apes. We're, you know, we're kind of special in some ways and not just because we're us, we like us because we're our favorite, but it's beyond that as well. Our um, ancestors used to run a lot more than we did. In fact, they used to do something called persistence hunting where um, they would chase down a goat or whatever until the goat gets exhausted and then we we'd get lunch. But like I would start and then I would tag team Brian in because he's young and fit and he would chase it for a while. Then he'd tag team Teddy Roosevelt in and then he would, and then Teddy Roosevelt would come back and tag team me. We'd all get to rest, but the goat never does. And that's what persistence hunting is. And that's what cheetahs do as well. So it's not like rocket science, but we have an arch to kind of help us with the pounding of our feet across the savanna to absorb that shock and also to give a little spring to our step. That's also, by the way, why we lost our hair covering. Turns out we have the same, approximately the same number of hair follicles as all the other great apes do. Now, hair doesn't come out of them, but they're there. Whenever you get goosebumps from being cold or scared, every one of those bumps is a hair follicle. But, you know, the genes have been turned off so that they don't produce hair anymore. But um, they're there. That's why we lost our hair, so we can radiate heat out into the environment. Well, Sasquatches aren't long distance persistent hunters. You know, they're like dwarves in Lord of the Rings, you know, very dangerous over short distances. So um, they, they don't have an arch. So these bones in this area, right in front of where the ankle is, they move together kind of like the middle of my hand does. And it's called a mid tarsal joint. It's actually a bunch of bones moving together, but it's, it's, they work together. So it's called a mid tarsal joint. And you can see signs of that in the footprints. Right here is in diagram. See, when we push off, we push off on the heads of our metatarsals, the very front part of our metatarsals, and our toes. 
Sasquatches and all other ape species push off in the entire front part of the foot. And when they push, sometimes a mound of dirt is raised right behind the metatarsals. You can see it here. This is this footprint cast is from 1967. This one is from 1958. Same cast. This one here is this cast here. And sure enough, that same signature is there. We didn't know about that in 1967, let alone 1958. The first time that was published in a scientific journal was by Dr. Jeff Meldrum in 2000 or 2001. Yet you go back and you see the foot morphology of this feature to the very, very first known Sasquatch footprint cast, pictured here, 1958. Here's that same track that was on top, kind of uh, lined up where the toes are to where the um, inferred reconstruction of the foot are, foot is. And here's that ridge. And where does it happen? Right behind the metatarsals, 1968. Here's another print, 1958. Here's that ridge. Where does it happen? Right behind the metatarsals. Here's a track from Washington in 2012. Where does that mound of ridge occur? Right behind the metatarsals. Here's a track from Montana in 2011, I believe. There's the ridge. Where does it happen? Right behind the metatarsals. The consistency is there. And remember what I said earlier, the heel is lengthened. The metatarsals are shorter. So not only do we have something pushing off in an inhuman-like way, but the ridge is still in the right place knowing that the metatarsals have been shortened. The consistency says something. And then, of course, when we get into footprint tracks, we start discovering we have tracks of the same individual Sasquatch from the same area again and again and again. On the left, that's one animal from 91 and 92, cast by different people a few miles apart. On the right, there's 86 and 88. Different people cast it, same general area, a few miles apart. All of these are from the same animal. All of those. Look at the weird shapes because the Sasquatch foot is not held static like your feet are by that arch of the, uh, the tendons and ligaments and all that jazz. Their feet are almost as bendy and flexible as your hands are. And because of that, we get all these different shaped footprints because the footprint is not the shape of the foot. It is the shape of the damage done to the ground by the foot as the thing walks by. If you look closely on a couple of these casts, you actually get skin ridge detail, fingerprints. Well, they're not fingers because they're on the toes, but you know what I mean? Dermatoglyphics is the fancy Greek name for them. People from the FBI have looked at these. They, they deem them to be real fingerprints of what of they don't know. There's other body parts as well that have been in contact with the ground, which makes sense because you think about even your lives, you know, even our domesticated human lives, how many parts of your body besides your feet touch the ground every single day? Quite a few. We have hands here, here. This is a knuckle right here. Here's an interesting knuckle print with a thumb going out to the side. You can even see the thumbnail right there. Yeah, this is a butt by the way, this is a butt print. They have sat down before and a couple of people have actually got the cast. Um, and this is a skookum body cast where the, the butt was here, the thigh. And you can see where the heel strikes the ground here a couple of times as it moved around. 
And finally, I think the congruency of data says something here too, because I thought I thought of as a fun experiment, I would look at a map um, of where black bears live because black bears are kind of the other large omnivore that inhabits North America. And I found one in California here. So inside the red over here is where black bears are known to live in California, okay? Now over here on the right, all these dot, the blue and red dots, those are purported Sasquatch sightings. When you look at them, yeah, you get a few outliers here and there, like here in the middle of the, uh, the valley here or out in the desert, kind of, un, you know, maybe, doubt it, but it's, it's totally congruent. The bears live in the same place as Sasquatches are purported to live. Now, skeptics would have to say, well, the people are obviously seeing Sasquatch or bears instead of Sasquatches. They're misidentifying them. Maybe. I doubt it because these bears are running off in two legs sometimes, all the time, really. So I don't know, either the, the people, which include police officers, military, clergy, grandma and grandpa, whoever, the, 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 the observations of Sasquatches kind of cut across the demographics of society. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. But another way to explain it for the skeptics is that people who live in the forest and mountains lie more than people who live in the desert. That could be another logical explanation. Or perhaps Sasquatches are real animals that inhabit a certain kind of habitat like bears do. Well, I'm coming to the end of my short presentation here. I think there's gonna be some questions, but I thought I would end with uh, like, why the heck do I do this, right? I have a degree in music. I could, well, I mean, it's COVID right now, but I could be playing in restaurants for a living. You know, I play, I play guitar, play jazz guitar. I taught elementary school for 14 years. I could continue my education career as well. Why do I do this Bigfoot thing? It's ridiculous. Um, kinda, it's fun. That's why I mostly do it. But honestly, I look at my life. I was afforded the opportunity to go Bigfooting on Animal Planet for nine years. That was pretty cool. I look at uh, other things that have come to me through this Bigfoot pursuit. Most of my best friends, really solid, lovely people. My dog, we found my dog while looking for Bigfoots out in the woods. She was tied to a tree by a leash 10 inches long, left to die out in the woods. I saved her, she saved me. I think we both got something out of the deal. Um, my wife, um, Melissa, she was a PA on the TV show I worked on. Like what that is actually important in my life has Bigfoot not given me. So my attempt at all this public speaking and edutainment stuff that I'm involved in is to give something back. Bigfoots are in fact a real animal. I can say this because I've seen one. I've spoken to thousands of people who have seen them. Um, I've found prints, I've tracked them, I've smelled them, I've been screamed at, I've had rocks thrown at me, you name it. I've, been, I've even seen one. Like I know they're real. There's no question about it for me. And because I, I'm privileged enough to know this, I'm thinking, well, what can I do to give something back? Because they've given me everything that's important to me in my life. So since they're real, I know eventually some hunter will kill one or a trucker will run one down on the way to his logging operation in the morning. And then the whole mystery will be done. I don't want them to be treated like the monsters that gorillas were treated as for the first half of the 20th century. Um, if they were ex ex extraordinarily dangerous human hunters, there'd be very few of us left. I'm trying to do something good because when you look back at the human history, um, all of the atrocities that we have done to one another is always born of ignorance. 
and perhaps by educating the public that these things are real. They deserve our respect and they're not monsters. They're a, a lot more like us than most people would be comfortable with, in my opinion. Um, maybe perhaps I can do something good for them um, when it's all said and done. Screenshot that. If you have a story, you want to share it with me. You have some sort of Bigfoot thing lying around the house you don't know what to do with, you want to donate it to our museum, contact me. If you have further questions, I'm very easily accessible. If there's anything I can do for you, I can do my best to help you or at least point you in the right direction. And that's all I have for you today. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to hit that share button. Facebook, Instagram, flyers on telephone poles, screaming it out your car window. I don't care how you share it, just hit that share button. Also, the Teddy Roosevelt's Bigfoot Adventure video stream that was presented tonight can be found and watched in its raw and uncut entirety at the Bigfoot and the Citizen Scientist Podcast YouTube page. So be sure to check that out. Also, if you would, hit the thumbs up button, subscribe, and share that channel around. That will mainly be my interview and in the field investigation hub, so make sure to hit that notification bell to stay up to date. Alright, so before I let you go, remember, love each other, love yourself, be kind, be safe, and until next time.
So with that, I'll turn it over to whoever's going to moderate. I forget because, you know, mouth open, brain off. So um, I'll just turn it over back to Brian and let somebody handle it from there and toss me some questions. We're going to have a moderator just because I know that it's going to get crazy. There's 99 people watching this um, and you can't all say things at once. So there's going to be a moderator and they're going to give me questions. And there you go. Cliff sounds great. Yeah, we're going to uh, bring in Jeremy Hoyt from Nebraska, actually. Uh, Jeremy, come on in. Oh, Jeremy? Let's see, where is you guys he? hear me okay? Sorry gotcha. about that. There he is. Yep. Uh, Alaska, right, huh? So we're in, Jeremy, we're in Alaska. I'm in Nebraska. <laughs> oh, my mistake. My entirely different place. I've been to both. Might yeah. as well be Alaska, as cold as it is today. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, we recorded uh, 94 mile an hour winds at the ranger station here today. So oh, my was, goodness. Oh, my goodness. All right. So let me see. Um, uh, got some questions coming in here for you, Cliff. Uh, okay. Uh, one wants to know, um, has there ever been any evidence of uh, droppings? Awful, anything like that. Big yeah, books. yeah, sure. Sure. There, there have been, um, I don't put, see, because most people don't really know the difference between a bear turd and a Bigfoot turd, you know, like, yeah, but there's certainly been stories of like huge human turds out in the woods that, you know, like gallons worth of it. Um, and, but I don't look into that, honestly. And here's my reason, because people can find me. Um, can you imagine the mail I would get if I started like expressing interest in Sasquatch turds? Like I would get like Dr. Meldrum has told me, told me stories about sopping wet, soggy boxes full of nastiness that arrive on his doorstep. I don't want that in my life. But along those lines, I have two very credible reports of an observation of a Sasquatch basically taking a dump. The first one was from 1967 and it was from the Clackamas River area. This gentleman saw a Bigfoot poop in a river, which I think is interesting. Because uh, like I used to have an iguana as a pet back in the day. And I know that I had to like poop her once a week or so or every couple of days by putting her in water. And I always think, you know what? Like, I know that when I hear water running, I have to pee. So like, maybe that's, you know, maybe that has something to do with it. You know, I, I don't know. But another observation, Dr. Meldrum shared this with me because he spoke to the witness. Dr. Jeff Meldrum from Idaho State University told me about a Yakima man, a Yakima tribe. Yakimas are, are a, a native um indigenous group out here in Washington, um, I believe is one of their tribal officers saw a Sasquatch and was following it from a distance. And he saw it poop and it covered up the poop like a cat did. And I think that's interesting because, you know, and you'd expect to find like big turds laying around the woods all the time in Sasquatch areas, but you just don't. 
skeptics say that's because Bigfoots aren't real, but two observations offer other, you know, possible explanations. But I don't look into it because I don't see what it would get me. I would learn a little bit about what they ate. Um, if I saw a Sasquatch poop, I would collect it, but I wouldn't take any Sasquatch poop from somebody else because a lot of times the lay public, um, their reasoning is, well, look how big it is. It has to be from a Bigfoot. It's like, I don't know. I think you're underestimating the sphincter of other animals, but like, nonetheless, you kind of hear, you kind of hear the song I'm singing. So I don't bother looking for that stuff. It's, it's out there. I'm sure it's out there, but I just don't, I, I'm not into it. I'm not a cropophile, I suppose. Okay. Um, I got a couple here that can kind of be, I think can kind of be combined into one question. Uh, just different ways of asking the same thing. Uh, uh, missing link uh, where they are on the sort of evolutionary ladder. Yeah. Yeah. Missing link. Yeah. That's a very common question. And the, the thing is there's no such thing as a missing link. Um, that term is left over from the 1600s when Linnaeus was uh, like, Linnaeus is a scientist that uh, like did the found, he's a founding father of taxonomy, which is the science of how you name and classify animals. And back in those days, like science was, was essentially dominated by Christianity. Um, and I'm not going to step on anybody's toes because I'm not talking about Christianity in general. I just want to let you know that. I talk from a scientific standpoint. Um, and, but back in those days, they had this idea of called the great chain of being, where the, like, the primitive animals are on the bottom and there's this chain going up to us that is only next to God because we're created in his image and all that sort of stuff. Um, and they figured, okay, there's a, pro a progressive... Well, the, like link, there's a chain linking, going from the most primitive to the most advanced, which is us. Um, am I paused? My, my video seems to be paused, but I'm, I'm okay. No? No, you're not. Anyway, I'll, I'll keep talking, assuming you can hear me. Um, well, it turns out that uh, they, they figured the missing link in that chain. So it's like this idea that doesn't fit in the biology, really, because now we know evolution. Well, they didn't know about evolution then. But even after Darwin published his books, like the, the idea of evolution has been tweaked a little bit, but it still holds true. That's not the way evolution happens. It's not this progression from one to the other. It's actually a big bush essentially. They named it like the family tree because a central trunk sort of thing, like a chain. That's not the way it works. turns out there's a big bush and um, lots of different lines go out in every direction. And some of them persist and some of them die off. Humans have persisted. You know, uh, horses have persisted. Um, woolly mammoths have died off. These other little, ten, these little branches on the bush. But, so there's no such thing as a missing link. But we can look at our family line um, and all the animals on our family line are called hominins. That's the fancy word for them. And uh, we can go back and say, where on the family tree do Sasquatches belong? And that's open for debate. But um, when you look at their behaviors, there's a couple things that are missing, like uh, the controlled use and creation of fire or um, um, well, I don't know, the, the tool use, you know, is another one, fashioning and using tools. Yeah, they probably use tools, but, you know, so do crows. You know, that doesn't make them geniuses. It makes them smart animals. Um, so, and those things seem to be missing from the Sasquatch repertoire. So we have to look back at the hominin family tree to the earliest species that we know did that stuff. And it's Homo habilis. 
which is a very, like I'll, I'll say archaic, although that word is kind of slowly fading from use in uh, paleoanthropology. But, um, but the, they have a lot of archaic features. They were much more chimpanzee-like than we are today. But so they used it. Homo habilis used those two things. So in my opinion, we have to look before that for the ancestor of the Sasquatch, which leaves us with the Australopithecines. Australopithecines um, came in two flavors, a thin gracile form that we think eventually led to our ancestors and a more robust, thick, stocky thing that was essentially a Bigfoot four or five feet tall. I think that's where we need to look for the ancestor of the Sasquatch. So there's no such thing as a missing link. Biologists don't think like that. It's an antiquated term from the basis of religion. I think we need to look at evolution in a different light than the, in the model that currently seems to check out. Um, so there you go. So these are probably just relict hominoids still persisting in small numbers in various pockets of the world. Okay. Let's see who, what else we got here. Um, I'm getting a bunch of questions about DNA on Bigfoot. Don't know yet. Um, the, DNA, but I will say that we don't have any body parts of a Sasquatch to test. There have been hairs collected that don't match other animals in North America that seem to be primate in origin. Um, and their hairs, you know, there's been about a dozen or two, maybe something like that. But hairs aren't a good source of DNA. Um, the only available hair in DNA when it's found at all is in the medulla. The medulla is essentially the central shaft of the hair much like the lead of a pencil. So the lead of a pencil is like the medulla. It's like a hollow shaft in the middle of the hair. If there's any DNA at all to be found in the hair, it's always in the medulla. And it's also just mitochondrial DNA, which only comes from the mother's side. Turns out one of the characteristics of Sasquatch hair is that it lacks or has a fragmentary medulla. And I'm sure the skeptics are going, well, isn't that convenient? Well, yeah, but if you have red hair, you lack that feature too. You know, red-headed red people lack a medulla or have a fragmentary medulla, just like Sasquatches do. So no DNA has thus far been collected, um, especially from body parts and whatnot, um, but we're working on it. But there is a new development called eDNA, environmental DNA, where you can actually, if you know a place where a Sasquatch went for sure, you can actually test the environment in that area and get trace DNA from them. And that's what we're working on at this moment. Like it's often used, like if you want to find out if you have an invasive like fish species in your pond, you can test the water of the pond and see all the animals that are in the pond. And we're trying to use that technology now in places that might have concentrated trace DNA of Sasquatches. But so far, nothing much to show of it. All right. I, I had to scroll back to find this one. Uh, JP, I think it is. Sorry about that. I'm asking about Bigfoot-like creatures coming over the land bridge, the Bering Land Bridge, and then uh, dividing into subspecies. Do you think that's a possibility? I certainly think that Sasquatches came into came into North America through the land bridge because so did horses, elephants, rhinos, and all the other megafauna that we know lived here once at one time. Um, but I don't see any reason at this point to think that there's more than one species in North America. The, um, the people who think there are subspecies of Sasquatches in North America tend to point to behaviors and the way they look. But, you know, go to the supermarket. You know, all those other bipedal things walking around, no matter how they look or their behaviors, good or bad, are the same species as you. 
Um, so I don't see any reason at this point to think that there's more than one species of Bigfoot-like critters in North America. Now, that's not to say there aren't in other parts of the world, because we know that certain ecological niches here in North America are filled by black bears, but yet you go over to Southeast Asia, they have sun bears, and they are in fact different species. Um, they've been differentiated for long enough, they've developed different traits. So are there other Sasquatch-like critters that are in fact a different species in other parts of the world? Maybe, I don't know. Or are they the same species? We just don't know yet. But so far, so good. Uh, all the footprint tracks here in North America, including handprints, um, seem to point to the same animal. The morphology is the same. Maybe there's other differences. I could be wrong. I'm very open to being wrong because I'm a, I try to be a good scientist. As I said at the beginning of this uh, foray here, I'm always trying to prove myself wrong. But so far, I can't. It seems that everything here is in one species, but they certainly came over the land bridge, just like all the other megafauna did. Question? What if they are humans with a very low IQ and no voice? Well, they're, they're definitely not humans because they don't look like us. They don't act like us. Their bone structure is different. They have sagittal crests. They live to be eight and a half feet tall. So they're not homo sapiens in the true sense of the word. Okay. So they're not humans as such. Um, they are human-like in many ways. Well, How human-like remains to be seen. You were just saying that we are this, this branching thing. We're discovering more and more species, uh, more and more kinds of human beings, and we keep changing the names as we find out more. So I'm just yeah, saying. in our they are. I, I personally think they're in our family. I think that they are a hominin. I think they're paranthropus. I could be incorrect though. I think that they come from our same lineage if you go back far enough, but. Paranthropus or Australopithecines, they're not truly human in our same sense of the word either. Um, they're related to us. They have some of the same behaviors. And certainly learning about Sasquatches will teach us a lot about ourselves at the end of the day. But they're not truly, they're not Homo sapiens sapiens, which is our species. What if, How, they, what if, go they, ahead. What if they can't talk? They might be able to talk. There's some very compelling um, uh, audio recorder recordings from the Sierra Nevada mountains and um, from the early 70s that have been uh, been analyzed by um, military personnel. Um, and they say, no, there's a language in there. Like if I found that, like if I heard this on the radio when I was on duty, it'd be my duty to transcribe it and give it to the, the, the intelligences, you know, so they might be speaking to one another. We don't have enough data, but I think I'm, I lean that way. I think they probably are speaking to one another, but that doesn't make them human. You know, whales are talking to each other. I don't know what they're saying either, but they're not human, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, See, because they're not coming near us, but I guess they're afraid of us. I don't know. I give up. Who can blame them? You know, I'm an introvert too. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Cliff. I got one here. Um, the evaluating the beddings and nests found in the Olympia forests. Yeah, yeah, Olympic National Forest. Um, yeah, I, I've been on site there a number of times. I found footprints there underneath the bedding, which is kind of cool. Like I'm, we're collecting the bedding for analysis and I find a footprint underneath the bedding material. Very interesting stuff. Um, in fact, I have a 40 gallon um, Home Depot bag in my garage at this very moment full of nothing but bedding material that I have to go through and dig, try to dig out hairs. Um, a new nest site has been discovered last February, about a year ago. 
Um, but I'm not part of the Olympic project. Um, I'm just a friend of theirs that they bring in every once in a while for help or whatever, or to share their finds with us. Um, I'm not privy to any work that's been done lately on them. I'm not even aware that they've been out there in the area. Um, I know that they were granted a five-year uh, extension on logging the land, so they're not going to log it for five years, but that, that five years is up this year. So we'll have to see what happens with that one. Um, but I have collected two hand, three handprints and three, I think three footprints. And then Todd Hale pulled another footprint cast or two out of there. And I know that uh, Shane Corson's working on trying to get through the, some of the hair analysis on that too. So I don't have any updates on that at this, this particular moment. Okay, I got one. Um, what about uh, Sasquatch's diet? Any ideas on that? Yeah, yeah, they've been seen eating a whole lot of stuff. And there's also a strong correlation between um, where Sasquatch sightings occur and also deer migration routes. I personally think that my hypothesis is that they're following the deer herds more or less, um, not only because deer apparently are delicious, you know, they've been seen killing and eating deer. Okay. They've been seen doing it. So we're confident that deer are on the menu, but deer have to be a little hard to catch. You know, <laughs> I think that they're also probably um, eating the same things the deer are eating. They've been observed eating deer and elk and frogs and fern stalks and berries and berry leaves and raiding human gardens and rodents. And now you just go down the list, man. Anything that's edible out there is on the menu. And especially when you look at their immense size, you know, like, like just for a moment, let's think about deer and elk. Okay. Uh, elk have very large body cavities and therefore a really extended um, intestinal tract. They can eat things that deer cannot because deer aren't as big. Um, and that extended intestinal tract um, gives elk the like uh, it affords more time as the food moves through the tubes to extract nutrients from. Deer don't have that size, so they actually have to eat highly nutritious green things growing up, which is why deer are always seen in meadows and you know power line cuts and railroad ways and the sides of roads because that's where the sunlight hits the forest floor, and those were the most nutritious. That is where the most nutritious plants eat or eat live. You know what I mean? That's where the, that's where you can find the most nutritious plants, and that's where you find the herbivores that are going after them. Elk, on the other hand, can live underneath the forest cover under the shadows of the trees and digest plants that eat there because of their intestinal differences. Well, Sasquatches are big animals. You know, Patty, like I said, she's only six, six and a half feet tall, the, the animal from the Patterson-Gimlin film. But she's, you know, like, you know, like 32 inch shoulders and probably 30 inches from front to back. That's a big gut section. Um, it's, it's entirely possible that Sasquatches can extract nutrients out of very, very low nutritional foods but they've been seen eating just about anything you can imagine, any type of animal out there. In fact, I know several um, witnesses who have Sasquatches sometimes on their properties. You know, they own a big property out in the woods and they can, one woman told me, this woman's on the Kitsap Peninsula up in Washington. She told me that you could always tell when the Bigfoots are around because all the possums, raccoons and skunks disappear. Huh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I think that anything that moves is on the menu for a Bigfoot. They do not have a very discriminating taste. <laughs> All right, I think we, I got. I think I got three more here to play off. Take then, your time, man. I got nothing. Unless, man. Somebody, unless somebody sends me something else, I think that's it. Uh, somebody's asking about uh, being able to identify the Bauman site or the Roosevelt encounters regarding Bigfoot. Any not enough information. 
There's just not enough information. I think that if I remember right, he tells the approximate area his that, that they're in um, the pass or the river. If I, I'd have to go back and double check. I only have so much RAM, you know, um, I'd have to go back and check the book, but I don't think there, there it's possible to identify the location, unfortunately. Uh, Cliff, uh, I'm, I'm on right now. Hi, Mark, how you doing, my friend? Hey, brother. Hey, good. That that question was for me. I was just okay. Asking. Well, that's up to you, man. You're the guy who found the Ape Canyon site. That's up to yeah, you. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I, I, that, was the that was the question for you in case you had any intel, as well as a question for Brian. And uh, Brian sent me some intel. That was a question for me in case you had anything. I'm going to say. Uh, well, I miss you, my friend. It'd be good to see you again. So. Yeah, okay. Okay. Thanks, Mark. I'll, I'll, I'll go find it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that guy found the Ape Canyon site. He can find anything. Excuse me. Excuse me. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, uh -huh. Dante. I I have a question. Is there any have you seen any Sasquatches like and you think that one that one time was like special you or you were just by yourself? Oh no, no. We were filming Finding Bigfoot at the time. Yeah, people. That's that's what's so uh, aggravating for me. People that you find them yet? So, well, yeah, the only one I've ever seen is when we were filming the show. Yeah. So, yeah, but I saw it on a thermal imager. It wasn't a really good sighting or anything like that. That's not much Can to you brag describe about. Your find. Well, okay. Um, we were in between shots. We were taking a break, and we were mad at the production team, and they were mad at us. Um, so they were over wondering, like, what are we going to do with these jerks? Um, and we we're wondering the same thing about them. And basically, um, at one point, um, Matt Moneymaker saw something on the hill. So he's he, like in the beginning of the show where you hear him say, oh, there's something on the hill. He's talking about the Bigfoot that I saw. Um, and we didn't get it on camera. I wish we did. Um, we weren't prepared for it. We were on break. But it was 2.30 in the morning. And I, it was either a human or a Sasquatch standing on the opposite hillside about 70 yards away. And uh, it was one color head to toe, which is important because I saw it through a thermal imager, not with my own eyes. And the thermal imager detects heat. So if you're wearing clothing, um, you should be able to see clothing, differentiation in temperatures, right? And it was very cold. It was like in the 20s or 30s, I think, that night, if I remember right. And so they would have been wearing like a puffy jacket or something. But yet this thing was one color head to the toe. And then at one point, Matt was yelling at it because he thought it was somebody spying on us. It doesn't make much sense to me. Um, it started walking away. It walked very strangely. I watched it walk for about five or eight seconds very peculiar gait. Matt tried to chase it off because, again, he thought it was a person. Um, but does, a person doesn't make a lot of sense because we were two miles off trail and uh, Matt never even got close to the thing, despite the fact that Matt had night vision in one eye and a thermal imager in the other. And then um, it, it just quickly navigated the wooded hillside that it was on without a light at two o'clock in the morning um, and quickly outpaced all of us. And then about 45 minutes later, we got a big vocalization, like a off the same hillside. So I'm inclined to think that it was a Sasquatch. I could be wrong. I'm where I'm very open to being wrong, as you know, but I'm inclined to think it was a big. Maybe it was a person who was literally just yelling because you noticed it. Maybe, maybe. But I don't have know. There been any sightings of Long Island Sasquatches? Long Island, not so much. I've, I've heard one or two things, but I'm not sure if I totally believe it or not. Because, you know, if, if a Bigfoot's in the area, you're going to get more than one sighting about it. You know, you're going to get a bunch of sightings within a general area. But Long Island in particular seems pretty well developed at this point. You know, like there's a lot of people there and a lot of cement and stuff. It's not a kind of place that I'd want to hang out if I was a Bigfoot. <laughs> Even if you're not a Bigfoot. 
Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe it's not my kind of place anyway. I don't know. I've never been though, to be <laughs> fair. So I'm sure it's lovely. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. What was the other one? Hey, uh, I think you kind of answered this one about uh, your scariest Bigfoot encounter. Oh, I don't know. I mean, um, when I, I don't, I go, I go bigfooting alone a lot. And sometimes when they're around and you're hearing knocks from both sides of camp or something, you kind of wonder like, what the hell am I doing here? You know, like that kind of stuff. But um, for the most part, I'm out there for a reason. And I don't mind so much when I, when they're around the scariest stuff that's ever happened to me while bigfooting has always been my mistakes, you know, finding myself three and a half miles upstream at dark, you know, without a flashlight, you know, just like I got carried away and I was being young and foolish you know, so a three, three and a half mile walk through a river wearing shorts and river sandals and a t-shirt with no light through Bigfoot country, it can be a little uh, hair raising. But, you know, it's always been my stupidity that got me in trouble, never the Bigfoots. Let me see if I can't combine a, a bunch of these here. People are asking about habitat, particularly in the Northeast, uh, Connecticut, New York, Vermont. Yeah, great uh, stuff. Uh, habitat, where, find where bears are bears and mountain lions and that's where bigfoots are um i've gone bigfooting through all those states um maine has a ton of stuff but um uh connecticut little less because a lot of people live there it's a lovely state and there's a lot of viable habitat just there's so many people there you know um even rhode island there's a there's a swamp in the middle is a green swamp or big swamp or something like that that has bigfoot reports out of it massachusetts there's a great uh, group out in massachusetts called squatchachusetts run by a good friend of mine named John Wilk. Um, he gets Bigfoot reports um, rather routinely from the same areas. Those are the same areas where the bears live. So if you're looking for Sasquatches, look for the bears, because if bears are there, um, there's probably a hundred times more bears than there are Bigfoots in the world. So if you can find some bears, maybe that's an area that Sasquatches go through as well, because they're going for the same resources, food, water, cover. That's it. Um, I have here. another thing to say. Oh, Dante, go ahead if you like. One, one more. Um, I was wondering. I was just thinking. I, I thought, unless someone's thinking of how many Sasquatches people have actually caught, which is zero, why would they even be pretending? Like, what if someone actually thinks they're a Sasquatch and actually shoots them? Well, if somebody shot a Sasquatch, the mystery would be over and they'd be a proven species. So that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is that you just shot a Sasquatch and most likely one bullet isn't going to bring it down. You hope you reload. No, he's saying why would people pretend to be Bigfoot? Oh, um, oh, why do hoaxers do things like that? Right. Basically, think, why do people pretend? Uh, there's a few reasons. The most common reasons, the most common reason by far is mental illness, um, like the, the the desperate need for attention. And um, uh, it's kind of the same reason that people act out in, in, in class. You know, I was an elementary school teacher for 14 years. I know you're kind. Right. So um, like when when the kids in class act out, like and when a substitute's there, they're doing it for attention. Right. So it's the same reason with adults, because adults are basically big kids that have jobs. But other than that, they're kids. 
And so some people want the attention. Some people want money. Some people want to hurt other people. And that's where the mental illness comes in. Um, and I think it's about not really caring about what other people want, do or think or whatever. They, they just want to play jokes. And some people just have a really weird sense of humor. So there's a lot of reasons why people hoax, um, but they don't understand that. the. I often wonder this. After Bigfoot is proven to be a real animal, are you still, are people still going to dress up in monkey suits and run across the road? I mean, maybe, you know, do, do people dress up as deer and run across the road now? Do people like, Hey, let's get that bear suit out and go run across the road. It's just, to me, it's the same logic. You know, they're just perfectly normal animals. Why would you go do that? I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, but I'm a simple man. Thanks. You're welcome. Hey, Cliff. Hi, Cliff. I'd say yes, but yeah, sure. Yeah. Whoever, I, I can't see oh, you, but I believe I'm you. sorry. Um, that's your words are not coming through. They sound cool, though. Maybe type it or something like that. Orb sightings, strange light on the same sightings as Bigfoot. Oh, orbs. I'm sorry, orbs and lights. Yeah, you know what? I don't think that orbs have anything to do with Sasquatches, except that they're sometimes seen in the same areas. Um, but 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 here's the thing. But from the human perspective, somebody goes to a spot looking for Bigfoot and they see weird lights in the woods. They're going to equate the two. But there's no reason, to my knowledge, there's certainly no evidence, to my knowledge, that they're related in any way, except that they're sometimes seen in the same habitat. But now the world is a weird place, man. There, it's, it's really, really peculiar. It's not only weirder than you think, it's actually weirder than you can think. You can't conceive how weird the, the universe is. We just don't, we aren't equipped. You know, evolution has not brought us there yet. Um, so because of that, we tend to explain one unknown phenomenon with another. And I don't think that gets us very far. Um, I'm an evidence-based researcher. I stick with the evidence and the evidence in this case points to a perfectly normal animal. Um, a lot of people disagree. They say that these things are UFO related. They say that they're interdimensional. They say all sorts of stuff. But my thing is that if they are UFO writing, interdimensional, shape-shifting whatevers, why are they eating roadkill? You know, like, why are they digging through trash cans and stuff to get food? Can't they do better? Um, I don't know. That's just, that's just my gut feeling. I'm following the evidence at this point, and the evidence points to a perfectly normal animal. Okay. Um, somebody asked, has sexual dimorphism been reported in Bigfoots like gorillas and orangutans? And every other primate species, absolutely. In fact, if you uh, do a scatter graph, it's called, and like estimated size sizes of observations of Sasquatches, as well as the footprint cast evidence, two big clusters appear, which would indicate a sexual dimorphism. For those people who don't know what sexual dimorphism is, it basically means that boys and girls have different anatomy, like size. And we know that in primates, the males are bigger than females. So, and the same thing is can be observed in Sasquatches. 
Um, if you look at the footprints evidence, for example, you get a cluster around 14 inches or so and about 16 inches or so of the, the length of the footprints. That would indicate a sexual dimorphism. So absolutely, just like every other perfectly normal species of animal, especially primates in this case, yeah, there's a sexual dimorphic, uh, there are sexually dimorphic traits. All right, and uh, what are your thoughts about infrasound? Um, infrasound, I think, is a, a legitimate uh, avenue of inquiry for Sasquatches. In fact, a, a, a lot of large animals use infrasound. But oddly enough, to this date, there has never been a survey of North American animals that use infrasound. Um, we know that giraffes use it. We know that uh, um, uh, alligators use them. We know that elephants use infrasound to communicate over vast distances. That's part of the reason they have such big ears and also part of the reason they have such big feet. They can actually feel the vibrations um, in the ground and, and they can hear and understand what the other elephants are trying to communicate up to five to seven miles away. But um, I think infrasound would go a long ways towards explaining a lot of the strange things that occur around Sasquatches, like somebody feeling that they're being watched before they observe a Sasquatch. Um, Dr. Grover Krantz suggested it might be pheromones. I think infrasound is another area that needs to be explored. Turns out that um, the Navy was doing experiments with infrasound as non-lethal crowd control. Um, and what they found through their experiments was uh, a lot of the same results that are reported in Sasquatch sightings. Um, like a feel, feeling of being watched, um, dizziness, uh, confusion, falling asleep quickly. All these sort of things have been reported before. And all of them ha could have something to do with infrasound. So I think that's a very legitimate avenue of study. But the hard part is, how do you record infrasound? Um, it's hard enough to say a Sasquatch made that noise, but like there's all sorts of infrasonic sources of sounds in the woods, everything from plate tectonics to volcanism to waves in the distance to trains going by 10 miles away. So how do you weed it out? That's the thing. And that's, that's I guess, the experiment that needs to be done. All right, so I've got a couple here about how long does the species live? All ape species, including humans, live to be about 40, 50 or so years in the wild. In the wild. Now, I'm 50 now. I should be dead, but I'm not yet. Medicine, right? Medicine and culture keep our species alive a little bit longer. But um, all the other ape species live to be about, say, 45 or 50 years old in the wild. And usually what gets them is a dental death like some sort of tooth cavity or abscess that gets infected and they either starve to death because they can't eat or the infection goes to their brain and kills them, you know? Um, now, Sasquatches are big apes. You know, they're bigger than us apes. We're apes too, right? So they're a bigger version of it. And there's a biological rule, and then I forget the name, um, but there's a biological rule that states that the bigger an animal is, the longer it tends to live. That may not be true with dog breeds, but it's true in cetaceans, for example. The big whales live longer than the, the dolphins do, you know? So Sasquatches might add a few years on to that 50-year range, um, which is interesting because that kind of gives us an idea of like, well, how come if Bigfoots are real, where are the bodies? Well, if we think about the population and combine that, the low population of Sasquatches, and combine that with the longevity of the species, um, when you start running numbers, like maybe five or six of these things die every year in the state of Oregon. You know, now, now mind you, I live in Oregon, so I know a lot of stuff about Oregon. Oregon has more forested acres than any other state except for Alaska. Oregon has more forests than California, than Washington, than Colorado, than every other state. 
And I think there's probably about 300 Bigfoots that live in the state based on the bear population, about 30, 35,000 bears. So five or six of these things die every year in Oregon. No wonder we don't find the bodies, man. You know? So anyway, that, that's something to consider. Okay. I got two really good ones that just came in here. If I, if I can, um, uh, why are the uh, sightings only one at a time? They're not. People have seen more than one of Sasquatch at the same time. The vast majority of sightings are of individuals, but that doesn't mean there's only one in the area. It just means that one was observed. And is there any indication as to whether uh, males are foragers or the females do that? Kind of like I think the they all do structure. it. I think they all do it because uh, right now the social structure is kind of a big question mark, but based on a small number of footprint finds, um, three, I think, to my knowledge, what, what it looks like, what it looks like is kind of an orangutan like social structure where the females and their offspring kind of stay put in one area and their territories abut other female territories. But the big male kind of circulates among them for booty calls and whatnot and tries to uh, push out the other Bigfoots from the area. That's right now the best guess on their social structure. But that, I mean, we could be very off on that, but that's kind of where the footprint track evidence. Because remember I mentioned in my presentation about finding the same individual footprint tracks again and again in the same area. Well, every once in a while, a really big footprint track will move into an area and is found and then it disappears. You see, so we're thinking that the 14 inches are probably females and that the big 16, 17 inch foot, footprints are probably the males dropping by. And somebody also asked, um... Do they have litters? How, how many babies are born? No, no prime, no ape. Young. Yeah, no ape has litters, essentially. They all give like uh, single births or maybe twins in some cases. Um, we are apes, remember that. Like we're special in a lot of ways and we certainly think we're much more special than we are, but we're special in some ways, but we're essentially apes at the end of the day. That is our family, okay? So um, we, a lot of the things they do, we'll find in ourselves as well. And so it's kind of a, a similar birth pattern, just like all the other ape species. I think I got everybody's question in here. Oh, um, I, I wanted to ask a question, if you don't, if you don't mind. I, I was going to ask Cliff, I, I'm from Guatemala, and uh, over there I heard about the Sisimite before. Sisimite is right, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I... Actually, I had not heard about Sasquatch until I was like in my 20s, but I always heard about the Sisimito because there's rivers, mountains, and you know, you name it. Um, over there, the the notion that it is, uh, you know, just like Sasquatch, but the difference is that a very it's a very aggressive animal, and that's why there's that you know very few reports because most people that see them don't tell the tale. Uh, also, it kidnaps uh, humans. And uh, so recently I talked to a gentleman, he's a businessman in uh, one of those northern cities, and he said he was waiting in his car for somebody when a large, very large, he, he was putting it at like eight, nine feet, Sisimite uh, walked out of the forest very close to his vehicle. Uh, he was very scared. The, the Bigfoot walked right into the forest. And um, he says ever since, neither him nor his family ever go out at night because they live in that town. Um, and so his concern was how dangerous it is and should they be concerned. Uh, I really haven't been able to find that much documentation about it besides, you know, all of the 
um, were, you know, like stories that I heard growing up. Uh, so question really quick, are they, do you, do you know if they're more aggressive or it's just, just, just tails? And have you, and where can I find more info about it? The CC Meets Day is really hard to find information on. I know about it um, because I'm interested in the Bigfoot thing. And I've also heard of sighting reports in Nicaragua um, and Belize. They call them duendes. I think they probably just seen small ones because, you know, duende means, you know, dwarf in Spanish. Um, so I think, uh, but it makes sense to me because um, there are Sasquatch-like, <coughs> excuse me, sightings from South America, and they had to get to South America somehow, right? Mm -hmm. So um, down there in Brazil, they're called um, uh, Mapinguaris. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, down in Chile and places like that, they also have a, a wild man sightings and it's just not very well documented. And that's the thing. <laughs> the reason we know about Bigfoot and Sasquatch and all that sort of stuff is because the people who wrote about them in the 1950s and 1960s. But nobody to this day has really done a good job collecting the stories from Guatemala or Central America in general. Um, I think it would be fascinating to do. Um, my friend Bobo, who was on the show with me, um, oddly enough, he used to go surfing down in Nicaragua all the time, and he would hear stories of these things. Um, but uh, the local people said they were much more common before the civil wars happened. Um, and they were never common, don't get me wrong, but they, they were seen more. They haven't really been appearing very much since then. But um, yeah, I'm wide open to the Sisamite, and I'm, I'm really thankful you brought that up because like black bears, did they have black bears in Guatemala? They do. Yeah, they do. I'm not a bit surprised. Yeah. Um, all the way down in Mexico, like the other large mammals in North America, Sasquatches seem to have a continent wide distribution, just mm -hmm. like all the other animals, nothing special, but are Sisamites more um, aggressive. I can't speak to that because I've read so few stories, but Bigfoot in general, Sasquatches in general, um, I wouldn't say that they're, they're overtly dangerous and out to get us. Because I think if they were, there'd be very few of us left. But they are large, wild animals. Whatever they are, human-like or not, they're big and they're wild and they don't want much to do with us. And that's enough reason to say that they're potentially dangerous, but maybe not uh, habitually dangerous. Yeah. You know? Don't yeah, mess the guy, with them. You know, I, like yeah. uh, the, the Bauman story, they shot at the thing. Ape Canyon story, they shot at the thing and that retaliated. Well, there's a lesson for you. Don't shoot at a Bigfoot and you're probably fine, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the guy I talked to, he said that they are seeing a female and two little ones around the city very often, so elusive, nobody can take pictures. The well, same if you know this gentleman, if, this, if you know this gentleman, ask him to go put plaster inside of a footprint. Because to my knowledge, that has never been done in Central America. And that would be very interesting. I'm easy to find. If you if you if this actually happens, contact me through my website or the, the museum website and let me know what happens. I'd love to work with you on something like that. All right. Will do. Thanks. Thank you. Excuse me. I hear a voice. Um, I've seen Bigfoot. Oh, yeah? Somewhere. In Oak City. In Oak City. Where's that? In, 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 in um, Nantucket, I thought. You think. Nantucket. Very good. Is that what you wanted to share? You saw him in Nantucket. Anything else about it? 
he just muted himself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take that as a sign. Yeah, I guess Cliff, have, have there been any Rhode Island big Bigfoot sightings on record? Oh, yeah. or sure, sure. Have... In fact, we, we filmed an episode right. in, in Rhode Island and we spoke to a couple of very compelling witnesses, one of which was a biologist. Um, who saw one of these things at fairly close range. He found he discovered a place where the local Rhode Island, you know, Department of Transportation or whatever they call themselves out there, um, were dumping the deer kills. They would take the deer that like, had been hit by cars and bring them to one spot and then throw the, the carcasses over them. And that's where he saw one of these things because I, I don't think he was necessarily interested in the deer kills, but he just stumbled across the spot. Um, yeah, so Rhode Island, all throughout the Northeast, all throughout the South. Yeah, everywhere that there's suitable habitat. That's the key. It is a geographic phenomenon, not a demographic phenomenon. Very interesting. Well, guys, I think we're going to close it out. I mean, uh, I have one more, though, actually, I think we should close, and this would be fun, because, uh, Jeremy, we all three talked about the other day, was the uh, military field manual. <laughs> Correct? Yeah. yeah. Cliff and Jeremy, you guys both both knew about it. Yeah, yeah, back in the 70s, I think. I had copies of it, um, certainly digital copies of it. Uh, the U.S. Uh, the Army Corps of Engineers included Sasquatches as part of their living fauna thing in the state of Washington. These giant, beautiful, like three foot by two and a half foot maps. And they have all these pictures of all the animals that live in, in Washington. And of course, they included Sasquatches in that, which I think is interesting. Yeah, because uh, I think that the government probably more or less aware that they're real that, that there exists they just don't want to deal with it because of the money issues and the hassle i mean look what the spotted owl and the snail darter fish what look what happened to the economies um when those animals were found to be important you know like hey we need old growth because this little owl about this big and everybody flipped out because it shut down the economy of the pacific northwest for a while the logging still really hasn't recovered well what i mean an owl this big or an eight and a half foot tall man-like human thing that's our closest relative walking the planet it would probably do a number on some of the economy. And of course, uh, politicians being what they are, they kind of worship the God of money. And what's the best way to preserve their God, like that would serve their master um, without spending any money. It's like, well, don't do anything because the Bigfoots are doing a really good job taking care of themselves, you know? And there's even, I've heard rumors that uh, Mitch McConnell's a witness and Rand Paul's a witness. Uh, I do know one guy in the House of Representatives that's interested in Sasquatches, uh, Tim Burchett from um, from uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, yeah, but he hasn't seen one. So and again, I don't know. I mean, I, I think some people are aware. Um, they just don't want to do anything about it because either they're not interested or they serve a different master. Bravo. Thank you kindly. The credit goes to the original author. <laughs> okay, Brian, is it my turn? Give me a thumbs up. All right, it is my turn. Hence the awkward pause. That's how I try to get into any conversation. I try to do it awkwardly. Um, and I succeed the vast majority of the time because I'm natural at it.